Wow. If, if you heard how many passes I've done on a few phrases and things on the show, <laughs> I think there was one where I did about five takes of uh, trying to say a word that just was not coming out of my mouth. It was so hard to not use that for the cold open. <laughs> Thank you for, I was wondering if you would. <laughs> Thank you for not doing you that. so should have. <laughs> yeah or like just stuck it at the end of the podcast like for those people who just let the podcast go and don't stop it when it's over (laughs) yeah a little hidden track yeah it's all right i'm back Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm Sean Hartman, and you know me as your mild-mannered co-host and occasional food truck owner, but in my younger days, I was known as the Reservoir of Pleasure. Ah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, you aged out of that one, huh? Yeah, you know, it could only last so long. Happens to the best of us. Dried up <laughs> reservoir. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm co-host Jeremy, and I've brought you guys these sacred sacred texts I just want to give to all of you. Oh, that's so generous. Here. Here, Sean. Here, Dave. Here, Peter. Here they all are. I'm just spreading the word and giving these to you. Oh, thank you, I will do That'll be $40. Oh, no, yeah, okay. <laughs> what definition of give are we using here? What? <laughs> the Harry He's giving Krishna you a book version. and you're giving him a generous donation of $40 or else. Oh yes. my. Oh my. The the kindness of extortion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I am co-host Peter Cook. And dear listener, are you searching for another land? where dope shops are in Krishna's hands. Do you find yourself wondering, where are these shops where I can find all the dope I want? Well, come on down to Krishna's Golden Dope Shop, where everything you see is free for a $40 donation. (laughs) That's a a very obscure Krautrock reference that I tied into the the album we're talking about today. I just kind of like lazily threw it out and you built this whole premise well done (laughs) it was impressive my pleasure sounds like we have somebody else in the house today yes who's here do i just introduce myself i just i'm dave david omaka and uh in my younger life i was i was not a what were you a reservoir of what were you sean pleasure a A reservoir reservoir of pleasure pleasure. yeah i I wasn't quite that but i i did i did uh, uh rehabilitate baby squirrels Aw. Making the world a better place, one squirrel at a time. One squirrel at a time. That should have been the that should have been on a door. That that is actual truth. I I did at one point rehab squirrels, but that's for another podcast. I don't I don't think we want to go down that road. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do you do nowadays, Dave? What brings you on the show? Well, I do a little bit of everything, which is sad don't do much of anything. I'm a dad first, and by trade I'm a historian of 
educational programs in science museums, which is how you know I got a PhD because it's so stupidly specific. It's like inanely specific. And uh, I love DJing um, and love collecting records. And so I DJ under the name DO77. And I'm a semi-retired rapper with the group Dollar Bin, where I rhymed under the name Verbal Math. But I just use Dave because it's simple. Not even Dr. Dave? Not even Dr. Dave. No. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to get a job before I start slinging around the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Got that PhD at least. It's a good start towards that doctor. And you are Philadelphia based, correct? I am. I am. Yeah. My wife is from Philly. I'm born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. And I met my wife who's from Philly. And uh, I've been chasing her around the country ever since, which involved a stop in uh, Wisconsin. Oh, wow. Yeah. All over the map. All over. And, and records everywhere. <laughs> Always. Always. Well, it sounds like you are very qualified to talk about a record with us. What record did you bring for the turntable today? I'm so excited to talk about this record. I brought Everything You See Is Me by Rasa. And this is a record I was introduced to by my, my partner um, in Dollar Bin and my dear friend, DJ Ian Head. And I, I, I'm sure you guys are or have been each other's record buddies or, you know, you have your record shopping buddy and they pull records and like, oh, or like you pull something. They're like, oh, you need that. Get that. Get that. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those records. Like I, I saw it. I just recently bought it for an actual dollar, but it's almost always been like a two dollar record, five dollar record, like super cheap record. And so I, I love it. It's it's fun. It's bizarre. It's like an artifact. I mean, all this stuff we'll get into, but um, it's, and it's also it's I, I find it oddly accessible. So it's one of those records I find I buy and just keep and then I'll tell somebody about it and like just give them a copy. So right now in my house, I have like three copies and I'm sure I'll give these away and buy more. <laughs> yeah, I just recently acquired a copy from my record buddy, Sean Hartman. Nice. Exactly. <laughs> I was also going to say, I feel like the general aim of this podcast is to be that record shopping buddy in podcast form for, ev- for, the, for the whole public, everyone out there, wherever you find podcasts. I've noticed you mentioned how you buy copies and give them away. I think our last like five guests <laughs> that have been on, like, you know, they're talking about a record they love and they're like, yeah, every time I find copies, I buy them and I give them away. <laughs> yeah that has come up a lot lately yeah yeah it's really it's i don't know it's sweet like when it happens to you it's always like holy crap you're giving me this you're giving me this record like you like this record and you're giving it to me but uh that's what makes it it's special i think all right you're getting the good guy discount only 30 dollars for my book (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm tearing up a little bit over here thank you Well, let's go ahead and listen to our first track, Dropping the Needle on Side A, track one, the title track, Everything You See Is Me.
I was very surprised to look at my copy of this album and see that it was released in 1978. I would have thought it was from the early 70s. Interesting. You know, I was thinking about that a lot, especially when I was making my list of similar sounding records because I really like to pick albums from the same year. And yeah, I was thinking, man, like 78, there wasn't a lot of people doing this exact sound. No, no, they're not at all affected by disco. Uh, maybe except, I don't know, some of the string arrangements, maybe a little bit. I could see that. Yeah, I guess so. A little bit, but it, yeah, it, it definitely, I feel like it has, if anything, that early 70s smooth funk kind of sound to it, but there's a lot of unique elements to this record as we will get into. I suppose the, the synthesizers definitely a- add that more late 70s element. True. Yeah. For sure. For sure. And it, it has a a yacht rocky thing happening like it feels like a very west coast kind of sound to me oh definitely i i put this in yacht rock sets for sure it's just got that like overly happy like intensely joyous kind of vibe to it that much of the yacht rock does so it fits very right clean in. yeah that too mm-hmm now, I just want to I want to put this down for the listeners real quick though. A couple days ago, I asked Peter in the group chat if he liked this record, and I believe his response was, "Well, yes, because I'm not a psychopath." <laughs> so I just want everybody to know that if you heard that song and you didn't like it, Peter Cook thinks you're a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you, uh, not specifically. You have to hear the whole record. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you heard that first song and didn't like it, you might have psychopathic tendencies. Well, let me let me say according it, to Peter Cook. So it, this mor- wow. this morning I put this on in the house, right? I don't usually play music for the house, which is weird, but I I, I put this on for the house as we were making breakfast, and uh, let's just say my wife and kids were not on board. So <laughs> so I just now Sean said that I called your whole family psychopaths. It's true. I'm just stating the facts. I may or may not have done the same at certain points in time. (laughs) And in those points, it probably was a bit more direct. Wow. (laughs) Okay, I feel less guilty now. Please, please do. Please do. So have we buried the lead on this record that this is a Hare Krishna record? Yeah, so I actually wanted to ask, how long did it take each of you guys to realize that this was a religious record when you first listened to it? About the, maybe the third or fourth song, I was like, is this some kind of Christian record that Sean is making us listen to? (laughs) And I was, I I didn't really pick up on what religion, but it definitely was like, oh, this is spiritual in some way. And I suppose the name Rasa could have been an indicator as well. But for me, I, I had listened to it once uh, weeks ago when I first got it from you, Sean, and it was just on in the background. And I don't think I picked up on it then, but then when sitting down with it the other day and pulling out the liner notes and reading through that as I listened, yeah, it was pretty quick that I realized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, uh, when my friend Ian gave me this record, he he said, "Yeah, this is a it's a Hari Krishna record," which I I remember thinking like, "What what?" But you know, Ian, if if you know Ian Head, um, if he recommends a record, you just kind of get it and don't ask many questions because he's 
99.9% right. And then when I heard it, I was like, how was this a Hare Krishna record? But then, you know, the lyrics, you're like, oh, oh. Yeah. They say Krishna a lot on the album. <laughs> they do. Yeah. It's it's like a George Harrison album. It seems like more and more as the album, yeah, like more and more as the album goes in too. Like it, I feel like it becomes increasingly obvious that there's something very religious happening <laughs> on these songs. Yeah. Which as a reggae fan, like I kind of have become used to, I don't, I don't want to call myself a huge reggae fan, but you kind of get used to like religious undertones or religious content like sure yeah definitely give jaw thanks and praise yeah <laughs> yeah it's like it's like yeah i mean you're you're listening to to rastafari testimonials and scriptures really when you're listening to a lot of reggae so i guess that in and of itself wasn't but i guess in that in this context right like this kind of yacht rocky context it yeah, definitely feels weird yeah it's yeah normally if I think of like Hare Krishna music, it's either George Harrison or Alice Coltrane. Right. <laughs> Both of which have used that imagery in, in their music. Correct, Sean? Correct. Which brings me to my next question. What do you guys know about Hare Krishna? <laughs> you know, I first heard of Hare Krishna through listening to the Beatles and George Harrison and John Lennon when I was 14. And I was like, that's a thing I don't know about. And mm -hmm. uh, here we are almost 30 years later, and I don't know that I've learned much more. I'm going to learn a <laughs> lot today. I have a, a fun story for this one. All right. I, for a few years, I had a copy of the Bhavad Gita or whatever it is. They're like spiritual text. That was irreverent. I should be more reverent towards their faith or something, probably. Anyways, <laughs> and I had it for a few years and had no idea what it was, but I had gotten it. I was at a music festival and was not my best self, was in an altered state, and some crusty hippie guys, like, talking to me, and I remember it being, like, very overwhelming and, like, I couldn't really get what he was trying to talk to me about. And he hands me the book and I just kind of like want to get away from the situation. So I start to walk away and then he kind of like chases me down and is like, Oh, uh, it's like, that's like, it costs us money to do this and blah. Like he wants me to give him money and I'm just like confused and want this to end. So I just hand him some money and walk away <laughs> with the book <laughs> Had it on my bookshelf for years before someone was looking through my bookshelf and was like, are you a Harry Krishna? And I was like, what's that? <laughs> when you said I was not my best self, I was like, this story is going to be awesome. And it did not disappoint. <laughs> I kind of love that as an answer of what your knowledge of Harry Krishna is either. So still like no more than Peter, but at least there's a story associated. <laughs> Yeah, I like kind of looked through the book a little. I was like, this doesn't make sense. And it has a cool cover, so I'll just put it on my bookshelf. All right. This is the outline of our future podcast of Jeremy Reviews Religions. <laughs> <laughs> I I only knew Hare Krishna. This is insane. Through the movie Airplane. You ever seen the movie Airplane? Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And there was like the Hare Krishnas that were in the airport. 
Yeah, in the movie. And so I, I don't remember as a kid going to the airport very often. So, but that was kind of my, it was like kind of a cultural understanding of that's what Hare Krishnas did. They just sat in the airport and bothered people. Right. And I think many people who were, you know, alive during that time period probably have just similar associations of him, like, you know, the, the robes and the chanting and dancing, and you see him at airports and public parks. And I feel like a lot of people don't actually know a whole lot about what it is. I would say my knowledge was like probably no better than <laughs> any of your guys either. Like, you know, heard it referenced a lot in my George Harrison and Alice Coltrane records and was always curious, but had like no more than just like passing concepts that I had just absorbed without actually diving in. So when I first heard this record and realized that it was the Hare Krishna record and the music was awesome and I knew we were going to cover it at some point, I was kind of excited about having the opportunity to dive in and get at least a surface level understanding of what Hare Krishna is. I was hoping that you were going to say you began practicing in a <laughs> method style. Yeah, I joined three years ago, and I have a full detailed report that I'd like to lay it out over the next six hours for you guys. Wow. You you do prep work for these apps. I'll give you that. Constantly striving to outdo myself. Only the best. All right, so real quick, let's, let's run through this. Hare Krishna is a branch of Hinduism that believes in the supreme being Krishna, um, it's, I guess, technically kind of a monotheistic segment of Hinduism. Followers have to lead a highly disciplined life. They are vegetarian, anti-materialistic, no sex outside of marriage, no drugs, no alcohol, no caffeine. And you have to chant upwards of two hours a day. Part of the religion is you have to speak the name of God thousands of times per day. It's very difficult <laughs> to be a true Hare Krishna practitioner. So as I said, chanting is a core tenant. They believe that speaking the name of God out loud physically improves the space around them. And this is why at the height of the religion's popularity, it was common to see members chanting in airports and public parks. It was, you know, proselytizing, getting more people to join, but also trying to like physically improve the public space around them, which is kind of cool. It's a nice thought. Yeah. The more I read about it, I was like, this, like, their heart's in the right place. Yeah. And then the more you read about it, it gets a little terrifying at the end. Oh, yeah. They're all cults. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> but. So followers view the modern world as something of an illusion. Um, it's like when they're trying to bring in people, they often talk about how the modern world is so broken and confusing and evil. And the appeal is to like simplify your worldview and give up everything and like get rid of the illusion and just love Krishna. I feel like that's, especially during the hippie times, that was a uh, recruitment tactic that worked really well. Yeah. And that sounds a lot like what I read in the liner notes to this album. Yes, absolutely. So when you, uh, you know, you throw away the illusion of the modern world, the goal is to attain a Krishna consciousness and you do this by abstaining from earthly delights in favor of Krishna's love, which, as a quote, they believe that Krishna's love is considered to be the reservoir of all pleasure. Oh. <laughs> Therefore, they don't need pleasure from any earthly things. Like, they're abstaining from anything fun in the world because, you know, hanging out with Krishna is just so fucking fun. They don't need anything else. <laughs> you should have, uh, wow. 
I think they need you to be their spokesperson. When that yeah. <laughs> I'm going to lead the charge on the new generation of Hare Krishnas. High on God. Krishna's golden dope shop. <laughs> and it sounds like Krishna could also take the place of a Big Mac. Right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> like, no need for Sundays. I mean, the, the ice cream confection yeah. Sunday. Yeah. 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 Listeners who have also checked out our Paul Horn Inside episode might notice a lot of similarities to transcendental meditation. Oh, interesting. Um, they both, you know, believe that their practice was physically improving the space around them. They both come from a Hindu background, and there's uh, a lot of similarities between the two. And they both, uh, you know, specifically appealed to Western pop culture and made it part of their mission to, like, convert musicians and directors and things like that. The religion was first introduced to the Western world when a guy named Swami Prabhupada came to New York in 1965 at the age of 70, increasing interest in Eastern spirituality and the rise of youth culture and the hippie movement made his teachings spread quickly. He was also notable for giving most of his lectures in public places and often to like a largely hippie and younger audience and pretty much right from the beginning of this religion coming to America, it was instantly associated with like a younger countercultural movement. And like we said, with musicians and pop culture figures. Okay. Yeah. See, I didn't realize when it was introduced, but that's makes so much sense because yeah, it was in listening to music from that era that I really became aware of Hare Krishna. Yeah. And it was an intentional move on their part and it worked. So in 1966, Prabhupada formed the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, which is shortened to ISKCON. So most of the people who are following this religion refer to it as ISKCON. Yeah, yeah, I saw that when I was doing research for this. I had never heard it referred to that way, but then I started seeing it over and over again. Right, and that's because like, as the movement gained popularity and people started seeing followers in public places, it just kind of the popular uh, you know, public perception became to call them Hare Krishnas, mainly because in the chants, those are like the two most common words that you're going to hear. So the religion became known as Hare Krishna and the followers became known as Hare Krishnas, even though that's not how they self-identify. Gotcha. That's very American. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just call them what we think, what we think they are. No need listening to what they say. Yep. <laughs> yep. We've done that a few times. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> Once or twice. So as we mentioned, George Harrison, you know, was a very public proponent of Hare Krishna or ISKCON. And his big hit, My Sweet Lord, in 1970, kind of sparked an international explosion of interest in the movement. It was one of the first, like, really big high-profile times where people were made aware of this. So fascinating. So, on top of all this, there's also a business end of ISKCON that was very successful. They had a massive book distribution company. As you know, we talked about these famous uh, pseudo donations of books. That's kind of how they always operated it. We're making these books to spread to people and ask for donations to further the cause. They made food products. They made household products. And they also had a very successful incense brand called Spiritual Sky Productions, which I didn't verify, but it claimed that it was at one point the leading brand of incense in the U.S. 
this is this is kind of blowing my mind that they're like I mean I guess I know there are brands of incense but who like I've never thought to myself oh this is my brand <laughs> you know what I mean like is it not I'm a spiritual sky productions kind of guy yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I, you know whatever smells good but you know I bet you if you showed me that I've had you know I've had my hippie years as as many of us have I had several years where I was not my best self I'm going to use that phrase. <laughs> so a lot of incense. Yeah. I, I probably know the brand when I see it. I probably know that. I probably know it. Are there any rappers that ever, you know, represent brands of incense? <laughs> if common never did, that was a failure by everyone who ever made incense. If common sure never have. sold incense, especially not. Come on. He's got the song. <laughs> not Chop, It's there. Not Chop, Yeah. It's there. Missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Common will come <laughs> up a little bit later in this conversation, actually. Exactly. Oh, nice. Yeah. I was going to say, do we drop that now or save that for later? We'll save it for later. Yeah. Save it. Yeah. All right. Um, so Swami Prabhupada died in 1970. As we said, he was already 70 years old when he came to America in 1965. And he was such a central figure to the religion and the business and the administration, and all of it, that the religion kind of naturally began to splinter after he died as it was rapidly spreading throughout the world. And then fast forward to the mid seventies through the early eighties, there was a long series of very high profile controversies within ISKCON. And this ranged from just mild, like, Oh, this guy isn't actually following all the rules and he's supposed to be our perfect spiritual leader all the way into serious accusations of cult-like behavior, brainwashing, child abuse, sexual misconduct by leaders, racketeering, and murder. Sounds like your classic cult story. Classic cult shit, yeah. Like there was a semi-high-profile member that was known to be writing a book critical of the movement, and he was just mysteriously assassinated. You know, all kinds of fun stuff. Holy cow. Are there, are there yeah. any good, like, benevolent cults? Like, or just by their nature, cults are just, you know, this. I, I feel like the only way to become a successful high profile cult like this is to deal in some racketeering and murder. Yeah. I guess if, I guess if you're not doing racketeering and murder, then you're just like a, a religious club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're just an after school program. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be fair. Name a religion that hasn't done some racketeering, molestation, murder. Go ahead. I'll wait. Yeah, name one. <laughs> that tracks. Yeah. The only difference is the size. So Hare Krishna, you know, uh, basically disappeared in the early to mid 80s through all this controversy. You know, uh, there was a significant drop in membership from people being disillusioned and also public approval plummeted. So no one wanted to see these people in airports after it came out that some of them were child molesters, obviously. But... Thankfully, in the past few decades, people have forgotten all that, and today Hare Krishna is enjoying renewed worldwide interest in increasing membership. Wow. I saw an article that in America, for the first time now, uh, people from India are the primary practitioners of ISKCON in America now. And for many, many years up until recently, it was white hippie people. Right. That was another weird thing about the movement is they came over and recruited white hippies and suddenly it was a movement run by white hippies. I will say that 
in general, it seemed a little more accepting. I mean, Alice Coltrane was a leader at the ashram that she was staying at. There was other high-profile female leaders of the group, and it was multiracial, but it seems like at least for the first decade or so, it was largely white men. I think we need to stop talking and for a moment and play some music. That's, oh, you're ex- right. that's exactly where we're at. <laughs> we went way deep on that. And now it's time to listen to side A, track two, questions in my mind. Once you understand kind of the background of what's going on there. And I noticed again when we were listening just now how young the voice sounds. Oh, yeah, there's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them. Yeah, the, the two main people recording this record and producing and writing the songs and playing the instruments and singing the lead vocals are 16 and 17 years old at the time of recording this album. Wow. It boggles my mind. And not only that, they are the children of a pretty legendary musician themselves. So this is Chris and London McDaniels are the two brothers behind the band Rasa, and they are the children of Eugene McDaniels. The headless hero of the apocalypse himself. That's right. That's the man. So who wants to help give the the quick bio of Eugene McDaniels for people who don't know who that is. I think you're the only one ready to do that, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I just didn't know if anybody else was a big enough fan to just jump in with a little bit of knowledge and I could round it out, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) So Eugene McDaniels got his start in the late fifties, early sixties, sang with the Les McCann trio, a previously featured artist. And then in the early sixties, he had some real big kind of, I would say like light soul pop crossover. You know, this is at a time when soul music was still kind of in its like germination and you had like the raw R and B underground guys. And then the only 
people doing soul stuff making the top of the pops chart had to be, have some like pretty watered down music so he had like big hits with 100 pounds of clay tower of strength that are like kind of cool songs but just sound like from a completely different era when you listen to him with modern ears and then he had his two kids london and chris in 1961 and 1962 by the mid 60s his career slowing down a little bit and after the MLK assassination, he becomes radicalized and moves to Europe. Uh, gets more into songwriting, writes Les McCann's big hit compared to what, which is a oh, yeah. famous protest song. And then in 1970, he returns to America and drops two records on Atlantic outlaws, which has this like wild cover of him and his band, just holding guns and looking tough as hell, a very different from his image just a few years earlier. And then he follows that with Headless Heroes of the Apocalypse. Not a cheap record. Not a cheap record. Neither one of them. They're both intense. They're amazing. Lots of uh, really famous hip-hop samples on there. In uh, 1974, he writes the song Feel Like Making Love for Roberta Flack that we covered. And it, that song gets covered many, many times over the years. And then it seems like after that, he continued writing and producing, but mostly kind of lived as a hermit in Maine, possibly upstate New York, and only released a couple albums after that, and then he passed away in 2011. Wow. So important to understand the father's bio of the two guys that are in here, because there's not a ton of information about the kids making this record and there's not a ton of information about this record. You kind of have to piece together what you can and then we can uh, maybe explore a little guesswork afterwards, but they both grew up and were child prodigy musicians. Both Chris and London started playing very young. They grew up in Southern California and then later moved to Seattle with their mother. I didn't find a confirmation, but it kind of seems like their mom raised them. I don't know how much contact or how close they even were with their dad, Eugene, I mean, at the time when they're like coming of age, it seems like he's fading from the music industry. So I don't know what that looked like in reality at that point for any of them. So they, uh, they both go out and move out on their own fairly young. They were either 15 and 16 or 16 and 17 when they moved out and attended the Berkeley school of music in Boston. And then on their first summer break, they were back in Seattle staying with their mom, and she encouraged them to go attend a local ISKCON event, mainly because they were giving out free lunches. Oh, my. That's high-level parenting right there. Yeah, for sure. That's high-level parenting. <laughs> so Chris and London have attended a few of these events, gotten multiple free meals, and while they're there, some of the local ISCON leaders hear of their musical talents and the fact that they're at Berkeley and approach them about making a record to promote Krishna consciousness to a Western audience. So the music is written and produced by Chris in London, but the words were written by members of ISCON. And I really tried to find out, but I'm just, I'm not sure what the level of belief that Chris and London had when they were making this. Like, I don't know if they were true believers in ISCON for a minute there, or if this was just simply free lunches turning into a paycheck, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so great. You know, <laughs> having been a 16, 17 year old at one time, now many years ago, <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I don't know that I, it, it, 
it almost seems like they might have seen it as a great opportunity to get their music out there and been willing to you know kind of do whatever needed whatever was in front of them to do that for sure yeah and i mean who knows they're you know impressionable teenagers they might have like kind of half believed it at least or been like hey this seems cool and these people are interesting if nothing else you know and they made of they might have like subscribed to it for a minute and then fallen off i just i don't know yeah <laughs> well i was just gonna say as young musicians i'm sure you just want to play you know and and um getting reps at, at making an album you know arranging and recording and like just to have an opportunity as a young musician at that level to just do a whole project that had to be crazy exciting i mean you know, then, and, and I mean, it seems like the Hari Krishnas were swell enough guys. I mean, I, you know, you know, they're giving out free lunches, like they're letting you make a record. I'm sure they were, were cool hanging out with them. Yeah. And like every, everything they're promoting is all about, you know, peace and love and making the world a better place. Like on a surface level, all of it seems great. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Especially two kids that are in their like first semester of music college. Like, of course they're going to say yes to any kind of like paid opportunity for making some more music. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And to get to go into a real studio. I mean, Mm -hmm. I still think that would be cool. Let alone 16 year old me. (laughs) Yeah. When it was a much less democratized thing as well, like recording (laughs) was much harder to come by in 19, the late 1970s. Which which makes that so, Hari Krishna strategy of reaching out to entertainers that much more interesting, right? Like you're giving access to people who may not have access, and that is its own major draw. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the other angle that I kind of thought about in regards to this, so this is 78. As we've already said, there was already multiple trials happening of people accusing them of brainwashing and more serious things. So, like public opinion is already starting to shift. So them pumping a bunch of money into having a really cool record to convert more people is starting to sound a little bit more of like a desperate tactic at this point too. For sure. Now, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead with this question, Sean, but as far as how easy it is to come across this record, to find it, was it more of a regional thing or was it distributed nationally? I think it was the first... Um, record that Govinda Records released. And it does have the most pressed of anything they did. There's the most issues, and it seems like it was uh, pressed internationally as well. It was only distributed through ISKCON, though. Like, I don't think it was sold in record stores initially. I mean, maybe if they had some like connections already, but like it was pretty much just given out at the temples and at organization events, kind of thing. Or I'm sure somebody had a stack of these at a music festival and was asking for generous donations after giving them out too. You know, they probably had similar <laughs> tactics, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's, what's fascinating is this record is everywhere. And normally something that is, you know, self-released and self-distributed like that just didn't have the numbers to be this prevalent, but I don't know how many of this album they made, but it had to be just thousands and thousands of it. Cause it's everywhere. Like it's still everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you can find it in the bins all over. Totally. Yeah, until this episode gets published, then it's a free for all. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I I took a trip home to Cleveland not that long ago, and it was in the stacks. And I was trying to convince my friend Dan to buy it. He did not buy it. I will be seeing Dan soon, and I will have a copy. No duck and rasa, Dan. 
<laughs> you must become a true believer. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I am a true believer of this record, and I think it's fascinating, particularly if you compare it to George Harrison and, and Alice Coltrane, how little this sounds like. Like, like I think, feel like George Harrison and Alice Coltrane, they incorporated some of what they identified as Hare Krishna aesthetics and, and sound into the music. This does not have any of those kind of Indian sound signatures in it. None of those textures or anything. It just, it's like a, it's a funky little pop record. Yeah. You could easily overlook the Krishna element. Yeah. If they didn't repeat it a lot. <laughs> so as someone that was raised in a conservative Christian household, like I was very aware of the Christian alternative bands that were hyped. And in that circle, it was always like, oh, you like this secular band? Well, check out this Christian band. And the Govinda Records thing seems like the exact same idea. I checked out a couple of the other releases. There's only like seven records that they've ever released and they're all different and they all are like trying really hard to be a specific thing like this is our rock record for the rockers and like this is our like spiritual jazz for all that like spiritual jazz heads and like it it all seems calculated and intentional and it's it's fascinating wow so another layer of this record you learn about the religious aspect, and then you learn about the Eugene McDaniels aspect. There's some pretty great players on this thing as well, which when I learned that it was, you know, religious propaganda, I was a little confused. Like, how are they getting Randy Brecker, George Young, and the Phoenix Horns on this album? Like, the Phoenix Horns are Earth, Wind, and Fire's horn section, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, these are some great players that I'm sure were not cheap. So it's like, were they into the whole ISKCON trip and kind of doing it for cheaper or I thought you know maybe Eugene McDaniels was pulling some industry connections but it kind of seems like he was pretty uninvolved in his kid's life at this point so my best guess now is like we know that ISKCON had crazy money from the whole business end of it they probably could just afford to hire a studio musicians if it meant furthering the cause and bringing more people into the fold I mean it, it sounds really good yeah, it does. They like they did a great job with this record. Like this is not just a simple curiosity. Like the music stands on its own. You know, it's a legitimately amazing album to listen to, but just happens to have a lot of interesting baggage and backstory associated with it. And it, it says yeah. it was recorded at the Music Farm in New York. I, I don't know if that was a big studio, but uh it's easy to imagine that, you know, if you're a session player I mean, how many of these guys probably played on sessions with Eugene McDaniels or worked on songs that Eugene McDaniels wrote? So I, it's easy for me to imagine that if, if Eugene McDaniels kids are like, hey, we're working on this thing. Why don't you drop by the studio? Yeah. And the money's good. You yeah. Know, I'm sure probably both those things <laughs> contributed. The back of the jacket also has a little blurb on the bottom saying thanks to George Harrison, Alice Coltrane, Stevie Wonder, and Neil Diamond for their contributions to ISKCON projects. So they may have uh, thrown in a few bucks to make this record happen as well. Who knows? That's amazing. Well, you guys want to hear another song now? Let's yes. do it. This one might be my favorite. I know this is a lot of people's favorite on the record. We're going to listen to When Will the Day Come? Side B, track three. Thank you. 
And I know that one day I'll be with you. So I also played this record for the family recently. And while this song was playing, my kiddo Eloise was like, well, I'm assuming you can't put this on your podcast, right? This is probably like a really popular album. Like, no, we're listening to it because this is next week. Like, wow, but it's so good. How is it only a dollar? (laughs) (laughs) So good. Legit. Yeah. It's so good. Once again, thanks to Stevie Wonder. (laughs) That sounded like a straight up Stevie cut. Yeah. Yeah, or Earth, Wind, and Fire. I have seen Chris mention later on that Stevie Wonder was a huge early influence for him, and you can definitely hear that influence going on in this record. Yeah, that song also, the word that comes to mind for me is kaleidoscopic. Mm. Like parts keep kind of pushing in and out and like coming to the front and kind of backing out. And yeah, so it kind of achieves that without sounding trippy or hippie at all, which is pretty cool. there's, There's a lot of depth going on to the sound here for sure. Yeah, and I I honestly will take the weird Krishna proselytizing over the like love you baby lyrics. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's it's truth. It's more interesting. Yeah. Totally. And I I love that the the phrase kaleidoscopic because all of the elements aren't like, you know, if you're looking in a kaleidoscope and you're turning it, like things kind of come into view and kind of recede out of view. And that's really what's beautiful about this track is like, here's a little beautiful guitar lick, but the guitar is not going to just overwhelm or here's, here's a little string arrangement. Like the whole album is just, I mean, the whole song is just really beautifully arranged so that nothing like all of this richness is there, but it's not like just barreling down on you. In a little bit, that kind of production style and the kaleidoscopic element, I was thinking a little bit about heat wave when listening to it just a similar way how they could really construct so many elements to a song but make it all just fit perfectly yeah the previously featured was it central heating by Mm -hmm. heatwave that we did yeah Yeah. similar time period too well you guys want to hear about what happened to chris in london after this record i'm so fascinated to hear this okay (laughs) um well for one thing any bio i found of them they make no mention of this album like a passing reference at best like during college we worked on an album project was the closest i ever found to them acknowledging the existence of rasa so i'm like so so curious you know like is it just was it a footnote that they forgot about and didn't want to talk about was it a fucked up time in their lives that they don't want to remember did something weird happen with the association or honestly the most likely scenario is that they tried really hard to get their careers to take off in the eighties. And that's at a point when no one wanted to be associated with Hare Krishna. So it could have just been as simple as that, but Chris and London continued working together and they eventually started a band called Carrera that put out a self-titled album in 1983 that you can pretty easily find in the dollar bins. It's not as good as this, although it does kind of sound like Toto, which is interesting. And then in 1985, they changed the band name to World Citizens with the hyper-1985 spelling of S-I-T-I-Z-E-N-Z. Yeah, it took me a second to realize what word that was supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the official 1985 spelling for sure. After that, the band broke up. They kind of went separate ways. Chris changed his name to Christopher Max. And... 
recorded a Nile Rodgers produced solo album in 1987 that got him a little bit of success, a little bit of chart attention. He also was on an episode of Soul Train in support of it. And then that kind of fizzled, but he has stayed active in music as much as he can. He now resides in Amsterdam, continues to perform as Christopher Max, and currently has a sound and style reminiscent of, I would say, a cross between Guns N' Roses and Lenny Kravitz. Oh, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I wish him the best and I hope it takes off, but uh, it's not for me. Wow. That does not sound for Sean Hartman. No, it sure isn't. The the Toto sounding record almost had me, but that's about as close as it gets. <laughs> I'm really waiting for your uh, Guns N' Roses phase. Yeah, well, it already happened. I don't, I don't see it coming back. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So after World Citizens broke up, London contributed to Duff McKagan's 1993 solo album, Believe in Me. Uh, uh, Duff McKagan, basis for Guns N' Roses. Yeah. <laughs> Say how both, many Guns N' Roses connections are here. I, man, it's so <laughs> weird. Like, they both, I guess, kind of for a long time identified as, like, rockers. And it kind of felt like there was some pushback, too. Like, Chris was saying he wanted to go full-on, like, hard rock. Like, that was his thing. But he kept feeling like he was pressured by the music industry to record in an R&B format as a black man which has happened many times for sure anyway so after the duff mckagan solo album london also then joined 90s jazz fusion group sex mob which featured at least one of the members of medesky martin and wood and they're kind of a notable jazz fusion jam band from that time period and he now lives in ithaca new york Seems like he's self-released a few solo albums and occasionally performs acoustic music. Hmm. And that's that's where they're at. Now, I'm curious, and Dave, Sean, you being the most familiar with this record, would you say that this is probably their best-known project? In a sense, like, is it is this a celebrated enough album amongst record collectors that this is, you know, it's odd that there's not that much information about it, but... Is is this probably like their crowning achievement? I mean, my impression is that this is like a really, if you know, you know, kind of record. Yeah. If you, if you look for like user reviews and comments across the internet, it's a range of like best shit ever to like, eh, it's okay. Like right. mildly decent, forgotten religious record. No point in caring. Um, I didn't know anything about this album before moving to Philly. It was actually former guest of the show, DJ Lola Kinks, that introduced me to it. This was one that she was considering doing for one of her previous episodes and then went a different direction. So mm-hmm. it's only been on my radar for about a year now. But it seems like every Philly DJ I meet out here loves this record. So I don't know if it's just like a Philly connection. I mean, there's definitely that like Philly soul element to it. So I could see crowds out here being a little more primed for this kind of style, but yeah, I don't know if it's, if it's like celebrated internationally or if it's just little pockets of, you know, record store buddies trying to hype it to their friends. Mm-hmm. It feels yeah. like it's the latter. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, it feels like it's the latter. And, and part of that is the fact that it's been sampled a couple times. True. Yeah. And, and in particular, the song we just played, which was sampled by none other than Common for the track that was a uh, said Take It Easy. Yeah, from '92. I forgot that Common went back that far. Totally. Yeah, can I borrow a dollar? 
and everything was produced by pretty much by No ID and Doug Inf. Well, Twilight Tone did a track. Is that a Twilight Tone beat? Let's see. I'm just, I should know this already. A3 Two Piece DRK? Who the heck is that? <laughs> Two Piece Dark? Oh, is that Twilight Tone? I don't know. Two Piece Dark. That's a great name. That is a good name. Yeah, like, you know, the chicken, you want the leg? The leg and the thigh? Two Piece Dark. <laughs> <laughs> You're winning. That's great. Yeah, so as, as like beat heads, digging for for joints that other people sampled this was kind of so it it was also one of the draws when ian pointed this out to me he's like yeah it was sample for commons record and you know so that's in chicago so it's kind of known in chicago but yeah i've never heard this record discussed in any other context than amongst record heads and dj friends and producers there's a few other pretty notable samples too uh there's a track with black rob and the locks from 2000 called can i live that sampled one of the songs on here and then the track beef by boogie down productions from 1990 is a sample of the opening like synth and bass line from chanting oh wow krs1 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah the one talking about how you shouldn't eat cows sampling the rasa record they were aligned yeah <laughs> they were aligned yeah it's such a in a weird in a way it's kind of appropriate that the mcdaniels brothers had such a curious and odd road after creating such a curious and odd record. Like it's mm-hmm. such a bizarre artifact, right? Like this Hari Krishna Yacht Rocky funk record. Right. And yeah, it's easy. I, 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 it would be awesome if they would be willing to tell the story of this because it's easy yeah, to imagine this sure. being part of their odd journey afterwards. I mean, how did they feel about the record industry after making the Hare Krishna record? Mm-hmm. So many questions. I've got so many questions in my mind after listening to this album. Let's get them on the pod. We need answers to the questions in our mind here, guys. Just play the record more, Sean. <laughs> yeah. If, uh, if the McDaniels brothers or anyone out there, has answers you can email us at i'd buy that podcast at gmail.com <laughs> true sean jeremy how in the world are you going to give us records that are similar to this record well i got a few you know i'm not going to say they're like a perfect match but it's close enough first one i thought of was david t walker and his album press on from 1973 you know, he's a session player, he's got a lot of jazz background, a lot of really good groove, and that one has some cool vocals, and it, it just has a similar, you know, uh, jazz funk, smooth yacht rock vibe. And like we said, this album feels like early 70s in a lot of times, so that's my early 70s comparison. And then I did think of two records I would recommend from 1978 itself, Lonnie Liston-Smith's Exotic Mysteries which not always a dollar bin record anymore, but it's not as expensive as some of his better known albums. And that one does a pretty good job of following the same vibe as this. It's more instrumental though. And then last one also from 1978, DD Bridgewater, just family. Oh, interesting. And what cult or religion is that promoting? Yeah, that's the thing. I wish I could be like, well, these are three other cult smooth jazz <laughs> yacht rock records that I can recommend, <laughs> but it, we can't get that similar on this one, but you know. <laughs> there, yeah, if there are others that 
closely. <laughs> if there are other albums that are that similar to this one, we haven't found them yet. Yeah, and no. can be found in a dollar bin. I do want to find these other Govinda Records releases now, though. It's going to be a little harder, but I've seen a couple of them before, and now I know what I'm looking for. I'm shocked you didn't take this opportunity to mention Jimmy Spheris again. Yeah, that's true. I should have. God, that you're right. Okay, fourth one. Jimmy Spheris, his entire catalog. <laughs> it's all so good. I feel yeah. like I have to quit the podcast now for forgetting to recommend Jimmy Spheris in a mildly similar album. <laughs> I finally picked up a copy of that recently. Isle of View, the first album that we ever talked about on this podcast. Right on. It's so good. Well, that's uh, that's all my notes. I, I think we hopefully did this record justice or as much as we could go buy it it's awesome buy three copies give them to your friends spread the word that's it that's That's it it. that's everything dave do you have anything that you'd like to plug before we get out of here no no these days i'm i'm just dadding it up looking for a job um but you can always check out dollabin.org the the old dollabin music is up there and we we called ourselves dollabin because we carry the same ethos as this podcast you know the best stuff isn't always the expensive stuff the best stuff is the stuff that makes you feel good and if that comes out of the dollar bin then all the better for your wallet so that's still out there and still rolling with the vinyl tap two and five djs so you could check them out on instagram and uh you know follow the crew there's just so much cool stuff happening and and we're we're thrilled i mean we're we're sorry that you guys lost uh, Sean, but we're so happy to pick him up out here in Philadelphia. He's been like a real gift to the community. So, uh, yeah, Vinyl Tap 215. And uh, that's it. I think you're now the fourth Vinyl Tap related guest on the podcast. It's a real like Philly takeover as far as the, the people guesting at this point. Everything yeah, is going had... according to plan. <laughs> yeah, we've had Doogee, Lola Kinks, Bo Gordon. Is he connected? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And then, yeah. Awesome. Sean, I want you to know that no one has danced in Kalamazoo since you left. <laughs> Not a single person. Not a single person. That's a damn shame. They're going to they're gonna have to come to Philly. I'm not going back. Yeah, we inadvertently became the Footloose City. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me so sad. There's no one here to, to show them how to dance. Hmm. Kalamazoo? Where the hell is Kalamazoo? I mean, they've been saying that long before then. <laughs> True. Now it's just the place where no one dances. Uh, thanks, Dave, for coming on the oh, pod. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. This was awesome. Thank you. What uh, is the final piece of Krishna that we will be receiving on this episode, Sean? <laughs> well, as your final journey, the final step of your journey to attaining true krishna consciousness we are going to play the final track on this album side b track four the dream is over which i believe is the only song on this album featuring the phoenix horns from earth wind and fire as mentioned yeah you can tell it's them it's the very distinct sound Mm -hmm. their horns they're so tight that they sound robotic almost but (laughs) with plenty of soul exactly that sound that no one could fully replicate awesome well this has been a very interesting enlightening episode of i'd buy that for a dollar and i think we've said it all so let's get out of here my name is peter cook i am an illusion but i'm also called jeremy ruggles (laughs) 
And I am Sean Hartman, your friendly neighborhood reservoir of pleasure. I don't ever want to hear you say that again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Krishnas won. We're still talking about their record. They won. <laughs> and I'm Dave. Thank you all so much. I'm going to go back and rehab some squirrels. <laughs> Perfect. <Aww. laughs> the other night I had a dream. I was running from someone, running from somewhere. Then I awoke, and that's just how.